Hi everyone, it's Emily um, back with another 21 and Sensory podcast and today I have a very special guest. I have Lydia Wilkins. Um, she is basically a powerhouse of many things. She, <laughs> I heard you laughing. Um, she is a freelance um, qualified journalist. Um, she also um, runs a blog and has an amazing newsletter and is um, across social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much because I want her to introduce herself. Um, so yeah, Lydia, do you want to say hi? Um, well, hi. But it's I, I feel sort of like I don't really need to introduce myself. That was so lovely <laughs> of you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, no worries. It's really quite strange because I tend not to have, if I say interaction with people, through what I do online about, I've noticed that the engagement has sort of, the more I've been online, the more it's sort of dropped off and I don't necessarily hear from people. So that was just so lovely of you to say thank you. <laughs> As Emily says, so I am a qualified journalist. My work has been found, can be found in places such as Reader's Digest, The Independent and Refinery29. I've been a blogger over at mademoiselewomen.com since 2012, I think. Yes, it must be somewhere around then. Um, <laughs> it's, I've been blogging online since then. Um, I was diagnosed when I was just about to turn 16, so that would have been around January 2015, I think. Um, I later went on to do my NCTJ qualification. I have a diploma and I am qualified in the basics such as basic media law, court reporting, shorthand, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. uh, due to COVID-19, I've also started a newsletter. So, yeah. <laughs> you sound very busy. <laughs> it's some days I am, some days I'm not. <laughs> it's I'm also... I... Due to the pandemic, I'm also teaching webinars about ASD online. So I guess you could say I am busy, but yeah. in my view, it's sort of the, it's you juggle a lot. So some days it could be busy, some days I'm not necessarily. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Oh, I didn't know you were doing that as well. So you're definitely kind of working across all sorts of media as well. I think the term now is something like multi-hyphenate, I think. That sounds fancier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <sounds> like... <laughs> I, I recently read, um, last year I visit, I interviewed Emma, I think her name is pronounced Gannon, the woman who does the Control-Alt-Delete podcast. Yes. And she, yes. Was, she was, her book's really interesting because it's, it's sort of like, almost like a productivity manifesto. I know I'm going really off tangent, but I just sort of nope. want to elaborate. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting because she was saying, for instance, about how the environment around us, so it impacts people's productivity. So if you have an open plan office, for instance, that's probably one of the very least productive environments you will find yourself in because it's simply, mm -hmm. simply put, it's so noisy. <laughs> definitely so um you kind of mentioned your diagnosis did you want to sort of go into that a bit more like what what is your diagnosis and when you sort of decided you were going to go ahead with that ah uh, okay um so what I remember is so throughout very 
if I say very, <laughs> got to stop saying that. If I say, um, in early education, I remember that teachers were not concerned as such, but they were always into. They had this idea that I was had very sort of different challenges compared to everyone else in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I could be very literal. If you said to pull your socks up, I would quite literally do that, not quite understanding that it meant to work harder and be a bit smarter about yourself. Okay, yeah. Um, I also have issues around kind of, if I say manual dexterity, so I remember, for instance, I found holding pens and tools like that really difficult at some point when I was very mm-hmm. little. So. When I would when I would be writing during the lesson, I would be holding the pen or pencil kind of with a bald fist rather than between your thumb and finger. Okay. Um, so, but I was also so, so I was referred for testing, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and originally that's how I was found to have I was really short sighted. So. Oh, okay. When I was about seven or eight, I was given my first pair of glasses. And for a while, it seemed to me that the issues I was having at the time, they all seemed to sort of go away because, oh, my God, the world is in technicolor. And I didn't know that, <laughs> and I didn't know that it wasn't just like colorful shapes and lots of nice, pretty colors. Um, but if I, it seemed to me that I seemed to sort of be showing kind of my autistic self more as I got older so when I went to secondary when I started secondary school I remember that it started off as I was having problems with as I said manual dexterity but also kind of so sort of how I was moving around so I would fall Mm -hmm. over a lot and my feet would turn inside out almost you know when you're when you line up for something and you just sort of flip your feet. So it's like they're on their side almost. Yeah. They would, so they would be doing that, for instance. I was a very clumsy person. Uh-huh. Um, but then I, so, but then what happened was I, we sort of, the kind of like a long, wide, not wide, long, winded process of diagnosing me sort of started off. I went to my GP. And I had a list of the different tasks that I was finding really difficult. So it could have been, I remember quite specifically, I had said chess pieces. So playing chess, I had a teeny tiny set that I would play on, but the pieces were really difficult to move. Okay. Um, I didn't move to Sussex, so I got on with my life almost. But at the same time, I was being, I remember that, I was referred by my GP for an autism diagnosis assessment. Mm-hmm. That eventually happened. I say eventually because there was sort of multiple tangents we went on, so different clinics and that sort of thing. It seemed to me retrospectively that nobody sort of really wanted to say I was autistic because I'm female. Right, okay. It took, from the point of referral, I think it was three and a half years with an assessment right at the end and then with more waiting because the cams where I am doesn't didn't have the 
I think they said it was said they didn't have the support to type up my report. Right. Okay. It took it took three and a half years, and I remember getting a letter saying, "Oh yes, you have your daughter has a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, but due to the fact that we don't have enough staff, your report hasn't been typed up yet." What? So in January 2015 was the January 2015 was kind of like the you know when they sort of sign you off when they mm-hmm. say you have a diagnosis and then they come back and they say do you have any questions for us here's what we'd recommend that sort of thing yeah so what was really quite retrospectively frustrating about this first of all it took forever yeah when it seemed sort of really obvious. So if I met someone and I introduced myself as someone who was on the autistic spectrum, I have had a few occasions where they've gone, oh, yes, that seemed fairly obvious to us. (laughs) (laughs) But if you had heard me as an 8, 9, 10-year-old, I had the, I think I had to... For people who don't know, Asperger's syndrome was sometimes referred... The people who... Hans Asperger started off with his, if I say patients, kind of like clients almost, who tended to be very young boys, and he referred to them as little professors. Okay. And he kind of saw the diagnostic spectrum within them almost. But little professors seem to, that's my email account, (laughs) Um, they seem to talk they were given the name because they talked in a very sort of professorly way. So okay. when I was when I was ten, eleven, or whatever, I it's it says in some of my reports, for instance, that I seemed to talk like an authority on whatever was the special interest at the time. Mm-hmm. I think I got the little professor part, to be honest. Okay. Um, <laughs> what? But the thing. That's also frustrating to me is that because I was diagnosed two months shy of turning 16, the focus was on more about getting me through my GCSE that was coming up five or six months afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's But the thing about that was, so prior to recording, I was saying to Emily how um, when I went to college to sit my A-levels, I was in the transition year. So you used to have in the first year, you would do your AS certificate and then you would do the full A-level in the second year. I was in the transition year. So for some subjects, I would do the AS level and then do the A-level at the end. Some of them were just a full straight A-level. Um. The college I went to was not the best. I can't really say a lot more because it would be defamatory. Um, (laughs) But nobody ever said I didn't really have the chance to explore what being a person on the spectrum meant to me in a way. So as I, a year after I went to college, I did my NCTJ diploma, which basically meant that I became a qualified journalist. After that, I was referred to a wonderful charity who offered me support. So they run kind of the emphasis on the emphasis is on social outings. So people who live in the area that I live in all get together and they all come together for activities such as going to a zoo, picnic, Christmas dinner. 
and they are on Spectrum. Okay, that's amazing. The charity, I know, it was an absolute, I was very, very lucky. It, my area is not exactly well covered for support for people my age. It tends to be either there's a waiting list or it's for people who are, who have had a diagnosis later on in life. Mm-hmm. But the thing about that was, so the charity, ha- the charity of the, I'm sorry, again, it's hot today. It's the day of the heat wave. It's the day of the heat wave. Um, I'm very hot and I'm tired. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is really warm. <laughs> the thing about this charity is, and I'm very, very lucky that they were able to offer me this. They offered me, they run courses. So one of them is called Life Skills, and you learn a bit of neuroscience and research and also you learn strategies so I was really interested to learn what things such as interception were nobody Mm -hmm. had thought to explain to me that we actually have eight senses instead instead of the five okay yeah um so on my reports it says Lydia is really clumsy Lydia has a tendency to walk into walls bookcases door handles that sort of thing Mm-hmm. Nobody ever thought to say, "Hold on, people on the spectrum have a have an impaired sense of proprioception." That may that might mean this is why she's having issues physically navigating round. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever thought to say, "Hold on, this has a name, and this is what we can do to overcome this." Okay, yeah. It's the thing oh. about the thing about the reports. It never says. Hold on a second. This person is bumping into doorways. Nobody considers how it's actually painful. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know if you find this. However, when I whenever I was walking into bookcases, it sort of became the thing of, oh, Lydia's just clumsy. There she goes again, almost. Yeah, you get kind of that label. Yeah, it it physically. Walking into a door is physically painful. Come on. Yeah, you get bruises. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. I remember the last day of college, I had managed to pull a load of books down on me, having walked into a bookcase. Oh, no. That was... And my politics teacher, who is probably one of the best lecturers I've had throughout Mm -hmm. my time in education, he looked around and he was actually concerned if, as to whether I was okay, and I was stood there laughing because it just seemed incredulous. <laughs> like somebody actually is concerned that I'm not just someone who's clumsy and going around and bumping myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. That, I'm glad. I'm glad that someone was looking out for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's but no, it's the process of me being diagnosed was not, if I say normal, when. We were discussing before we started recording. We've both read Odd Girl Out by Laura James. Yes. She seems to have had almost kind of like a straightforward process of being diagnosed. Mm. Apart from the fact that it took her many, many years to get to the point where somebody to say she was on the spectrum. And she was sort of almost bounced around in a way, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But it was very sort of oh, we think you have ASD, we will refer you, dot, dot, dot. However many months, years later, oh, this is true. Here is your label. I was just sort Mm -hmm. of 
lost, bouncing around. I remember I was tested for things such as dyspraxia and dyslexia. Okay. I'm I'm not dyspraxic or dyslexic. It just I fail to see how personally I can be. That's I I don't fall into that label. Mm-hmm. It seemed very obvious to me that I was autistic, to be totally honest. Yeah. But just, oh my God, she's female. She can't possibly be autistic. Yeah, I think, yeah, there is there is quite a lot of that, isn't there? Especially kind of back then as well. And I think that's why my kind of autism wasn't picked up as well, because it wasn't, it's just not really associated with girls as much. And it's, isn't it really strange though? It is... I said to want to say, come on, this is the 21st century. Of yes. course, it's it seems almost stupid to me in a way how autism is not associated with girls. Well, it literally says it's a spectrum. So, so mm-hmm. people who present as female, I think I'm using that in the right way, people who present as female must mm-hmm. sit on the spectrum somewhere. Where on earth yeah. did the idea that it's only boys will be uh boys only thing come from it just seems it just seems really stupid to me <laughs> yeah no it does <laughs> well, it was really interesting to hear like you know how your autism like diagnosis process has been you know totally different to you know my own as well as like other people I've heard about like it seems like there's no there's no uniform way to get like diagnosed as such I mean you think you go to your doctor and then there's a process but actually you know like you're saying you get bounced around and you're you know it really depends on your area and the support you have in your area as to the kind of process you get. I think it's there's also I think there's also an element of luck to it in a way Mm. it's I fully recognize that in some respects that I'm a very privileged autistic person I got incredibly lucky that I was diagnosed at the age then, and I was very Mm -hmm. lucky that my parents at the time were, I use pushy in a good way, they were very assertive in the sense that we know she's on the spectrum somewhere, we know that she has challenges, we are her parents, we are the authority on this, we just need to give we just need you to help us out and give us the label. They weren't exactly the type to select, to sort of to sort of roll over, if I can put it like that. They were mm-hmm. very assertive in saying that I needed help, that I had to, that something had to be done, rather than just sort of, you know, you you hear these stories of people who are years later questioning, could they, can they be on the spectrum? And then sort of looking back going, oh, I've wasted so much time wondering if I am or not, and I feel like I've lost so many years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was very, very lucky in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's interesting that you say, like, you're, you're really lucky because, you know, to me, three, you know, three and a bit years is a, is a huge amount of time to to wait and to kind of, you know, have you know doubts and stuff and like worries about it I mean my my kind of waiting list time like all together all in like from going to the doctors to being assessed was 14 months and I thought that's that's a really long time but you know it, it just shows that the waiting times are so different and like you say it is about luck it's you know 
do you find like a really understanding GP or a really understanding, you know, the next, you know, step and stuff. So yeah, I get what you mean. I think there's also an element of being an advocate for yourself that makes sense. Yes. So there are, I keep coming back to, there seems to be a sort of common experience in what I've been reading, for instance, how a person will go to their doctor and say, I think I'm on the spectrum. However, they have to, it takes the person often a while to understand what their rights are. So in the UK, mm -hmm. for instance, there's been a few scenarios I've read where the person has got a not very sympathetic doctor. Yeah. And they've been dismissed, not really listened to, but it's taken them the patient a while to understand that they can actually go back to the receptionist and say, I would like to see someone else. Mm -hmm. Not many people from my reading seem to have realised this. And it's, yeah. it's really quite interesting to me because it seems kind of like, it seems one of those things that everybody should know but doesn't in a way. The sort of, of kind of the when you look online, for instance, and it's sort of, it's sort of like today I was adulting. Mm -hmm. It seems like one of those things that we haven't quite reached almost. Yeah, <laughs> it just there is that as well. It's just the the know your rights thing. It shouldn't be that way, I don't think, because it's well, medicine as a concept, everyone is you. <laughs> I forget what it's called, but it's rather than seeing diff seeing the different people kind of by the label or whatever religious affiliation, you treat everyone, mm -hmm. you treat everyone the same. It just seems really quite odd to me that this isn't being very strictly abided by. Secondly, it's just <laughs> you have an impact on that person. Yeah, you could potentially change their lives. I mean, it's just yeah, just, definitely. It just it needs to be actually taken seriously rather than oh, you're just a stupid human. Go away. <laughs> That's the thing. I think you're 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 kind of, especially I was. I went to my GP and I had not a very understanding doctor, and then went back and saw a um, another doctor who was lovely, and it was the luck of the draw, but also, like you say, I didn't know my rights then. And I just thought, oh, I'll just make another appointment. Whereas actually I could have kind of requested to see someone different. And just knowing these things, like now in like hindsight, it's it's a, it's obviously frustrating, but if we can like pass that on to other people and just, you know, make people aware that, you know, you do have the right to, you know, be listened to and to be taken seriously. So, yeah. I feel like we should almost design kind of like an infographic that we can post on Twitter and Instagram. These are your rights. Know your rights. Yeah, I, I'm up for that. <laughs> if you, you can do the illustrations and I'll write the text. Sounds great. <laughs> Good collab. <laughs> so talking about like, you mentioned you're like a freelance journalist and like your presence online and stuff. So your blog sort of came first. Is that right? Yes, but the... In terms of the timeline of events, my mm -hmm. I I started the blog in twenty twelve, but it okay. was but it was I had started secondary school by that point, and I was more sort of 
I knew that I wanted to write for a living. I just didn't know how. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be, so at the time, it seemed to be in every magazine I was reading how to get rich quick and how to blog. <laughs> and it was just before we saw people such as Zoella sort of start to take off. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I had, there was a particular magazine clipping that I had torn out of Shout Magazine and it was saying, it was like a step-by-step guide as to how to set up your own blog. Okay. And it had a woman called Hat Hannah. She's not, I don't think she's online anymore. She used to blog at Life for a Cat's Eyes. Okay. Um, I'd read that and it took a while. I think it was maybe two, two and a half years from the point of this being published that I was given the go-ahead to say you can set this up so I didn't really understand what a blog was so (laughs) instead of having the posts I would just have like a hundred different pages about the different topics and the different pages would be written as the post right okay I see so Rather than having the about me page, I'd be writing about some ridiculous topic about I don't know I don't know it could have been about Adele songs at okay. one point. Um, that sort of I eventually sort of while I was at school and things, uh, my sort of hobby, if you like, was sort of reading around how to make the blog better in a way. So it started to. It was tidied up. It was, there was better content on it. It started to take shape. At the same time, I sort of realised that I wanted to be a reporter slash journalist. I use these terms interchangeably, though they're slightly different. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of, it became a way to almost practice the style of how to write, if that makes sense. So I can remember, for instance, I I love doing interviews. They are my favourite part of my job. I really enjoy it. It (laughs) is, if you have a pen and paper in your hand, it's basically a licence to be nosy and to ask any (laughs) question that you want. Excellent. (laughs) It's just, and you also don't have to, you don't have to, worry about the kind of like social codes in a way you have permission to ask any question that you want mm-hmm. so I can remember so two years ago I interviewed Alan Rusbridger the former editor of the Guardian okay and he had he'd written a new book called Breaking News and it was about it's kind of sort of like a manifesto part biography type book and it talks about journalism as it is now how the industry is sort of in this transition almost and I remember he was sort of he had this sort of really quite interesting reaction because I just had to ask are you a feminist mm-hmm. and I remember he just it was like a pin dropped it was just it sort of oh, my God, she didn't ask that question. And he just sort of said, well, yes, of course. I can't, okay. quite, I can't quite remember the particular quote you said because this was a while ago. Um, so if you're listening, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, so with the blog, I started to interview people and 
as time went by, it sort of, well, as I say, I sort of developed a particular style, a particular way of doing things. So mm-hmm. if it, in such as by style, I, do mean, I don't mean in terms of the writing, I mean the way that it's laid out. Yeah. So everything that you see, even in terms of newspapers, has a particular house style. If you look at the front page of a paper, for instance, you don't have paragraphs. Everything is a single sentence. Okay, yeah. So I started to do that. Um, but then I left secondary school and I had, due to the way that college would be for my year group, I had a longer summer. And I'd started to do work experience during that time because it's sort of, you can't just lull about here sort of thing. You have to do something with your time. Um, I, people are going to hate me for this at the listing. Um, (laughs) I was lucky enough to intern at the Daily Mail. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was on the female desk. I say I add the emphasis because it's not spelled, it's female was in the masthead. Yeah. Um, and I was, I had a very nice editor, Andrew, I think his last name's pronounced Murad, Murad, something like that. I never actually heard him say it. Um, he invited me into his office at the end of it to kind of, I had the chance to ask any sort of questions I wanted. He gave me advice and he said, if you want to be a journalist, go and do your NCTJ. Okay. So an NCTJ is a diploma and it's from the National Council for the Training of Journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, it dep- In terms of qualification, in my view, there's not really a set pathway into the industry, to be totally honest. You can do, you can do a degree. So, people that I know have a degree in English. Some have a degree in history. I just did the diploma because I didn't, I didn't really want to go to university. I'd had a really quite horrible time in education, to be honest. That's fair enough. And the thought of studying for an extra three years just sort of wanted. I just wanted to cry at that prospect, to be honest. <laughs> um, that, that makes sense. <laughs> the universities I had visited didn't seem to be the necessarily the best equipped to help me. Um, okay. So you know, it's almost – I always find it really interesting when they say I'm autistic to people because they usually have two different reactions – Mm-hmm. that fall into two very separate but very distinctive categories. So some of them would just be like, oh, okay, and? Because yeah. it's it's the – autism is not the be-all and end-all. It's not the most interesting thing about me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's always the second reaction, which they think it's kind of like they usually speak through you. So. I flew to, prior to the lockdown, I flew to Manhattan, but I went to the special reservations at Heathrow. As soon as I said I was on the spectrum, the woman physically turned her body and talked to my mum. What? As it, and she was saying, what, what, what adaptions, what help does your daughter need? And my mum. Right <laughs> exactly. So, <but> it's, <laughs> yeah. 
and my mum, God bless her, did just say, well, maybe you should ask my daughter that. Because, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it tends to be the sort of, they think, sometimes I've had the reaction where that category of people have thought that I'm not this age I am. So they immediately put on a kind of like a, I would describe it as a sort of baby voice. Yeah, I, I know. I know the one you mean. <laughs> oh, really, dear? That's interesting. It's and patronizing. Start, yeah, it, it is incredibly patronizing, and they start to use the sort of they use very simple language, and they it's a, it's essentially as if you're stupid when you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I went round some universities. There were lecturers and people who were part of the learning support who talk to me like that I've also noticed they there's an emphasis on special okay so come to our club you'll make special friends uh, really it's the really 21st bad. century it's um I did my so I did my NCTJ and I had a wonderful wonderful lecturer it was probably for the first time in my life I felt like I was being treated like a student rather than the one with the problems Mm. so (laughs) I mean that's amazing but it shouldn't have you know taken you so long through education to get to that point true I'll give you that um (laughs) his name I'm not going to say his last name so he taught me law Pete was amazing he had he had a very particular style of teaching so if you had when you start to do your law qualification, it starts with contempt of court, which is kind of like the biggest thing that you need to be aware of. And it's one of the things that reporting, it has to be accounted for at all times. So if there is a live trial on, for instance, or even if you're just sharing content, it may prejudice a trial. You have okay. to be careful of it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, so you know when in life you have those sort of like the turning moments where you think back retrospectively and think, oh, my God, that was actually more significant than I thought it was at the time? Yeah. <laughs> so what he used to do, he used to tell his own stories to make the content that was particularly dry and very boring come alive. So. But they were they were sort of, if I say stories about Fleet Street, so and by that I mean the sort of the seventies, eighties crusading, campaigning, we are the free press sort of thing. The mm-hmm. the sort of it's the it's the standard we who are students now aspire to be. Um so at the time that we were doing contempt of court, um, it's a bit long. It's a bit long-winded this story, but stay, right. <laughs> stay with me. Um, he was telling us about this, and it was. <laughs> it's. I remember asking a particular question. So, a few years before that, um, at secondary school, I had been bullied because some. If you if you catch me on a bad day, it's very obvious at times that I have that physically I have some challenges within myself. So in terms of my so manual dexterity and things like that, it's really obvious at times. Okay. 
And people who, people who were in my class used to refer to me as a flid. That's a horrible term that's used, and it's based off the thalidomide children. So mm-hmm. thalidomide was a drug that was introduced here in the UK, and it led to birth defects, essentially. So there are children who are around now who are just about to turn 60, some of them, where it means that they're that they were missing a portion of their arm, and it would mean that they had fused fingers, for instance. Okay, right. So some of that's that's considered to be the milder, and some of them had no arms and no legs. Some of them had hearing loss. Some of them would lose an eye and things like that. And there was also a lot of internal damage. The thing about that was at the time, say. I forget exactly when this was. So around sort of the early seventies, the Sunday Times led a. It was. It seemed to be kind of like a watershed moment. They led a campaign for compensation from the people who distributed it in the UK distillers. Okay. But the thing, the thing is, that's not necessarily talked about. At is, I'm gonna start that sentence again. I'm as I said, I'm really tired. All right. Um, at what's not always talked about at the time there was a kind of like almost like an underground campaign because at the time you couldn't comment on a trial so you if if you reported the facts that was okay however you would not be able to comment on it necessarily right. so if you had issued proceedings it was it was essentially barred a travesty being reported, basically. Mm-hmm. At the time, the Sunday Times led a campaign for compensation for the children because they were left without support. How can somebody who has no arms and no legs have any sort of quality of life if they've not got any sort of adaptations or they've not got the financial support or they can't necessarily... They, some of them may not necessarily be able to drive without their car being adapted for them, but especially that costs a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The Sunday Times led a f- successful campaign and they were compensated, these children. At the time, however, when this was sort of in full campaign mode, if you like, and before the final thing had been ruled upon saying you will be given X amount of money and it will be set in a trust or whatever, um, there was an underground campaign. And what it was is a person would go along in a car and they would have posters linking the drinks company, distillers, to the plight of the children. So distillers used to sell brands that are kind of infamous now when we think about alcohol mm-hmm. and it was and it was linked to say would you really be drinking this if you knew it led to what happened to these poor children right so the thing about mm-hmm. this was it was there's a documentary the BBC had a few years ago and it was indirect it was Rupert Murdoch kind of funded it I forget how the particulars of it but it was indirectly mm-hmm. And the BBC had they found like the evidence, and their one of the reporters with the Sunday Times had written about it in his book, A Hacks Progress. But I remember asking 
my lecturer, Pete, at the time saying, would this not have been in contempt of court? I now know that it would have been because okay. it was it's very, very inflammatory, essentially. it's If you put that around now, that would, again, not be taken very lightly. And But the thing is, he had misunderstood my question. And he he is not a fan of Rupert Murdoch. And it, it was made a cliche about how a cat bristles when it stands with its, when it sort of arches its back in its first and on end. He sort of did that in front of me. Okay. And it, and, and it was... <laughs> Retrospectively, it's almost hilarious to me. And he sort of, he was trying not to shout because this was in the first few weeks that I knew him. I was a new student and you mustn't frighten new students. No. Um, but he was going, that was Harold Evans. That was not Rupert Murdoch. Well, he'd misunderstood the question because the posters were in contempt of court. But I was sort of left with the question, who is Harold Evans? And I remember, I remember going round and round for weeks, going, "I'm so confused by this," and I had to look this person up because he must be significant if your teacher's talking about them, surely. And it was the editor at the Sunday Times at the time who led the campaign for compensation. I watched the. There's a wonderful documentary on Netflix called "Attacking the Devil: Harold Evans and the Last Nazi War Crime." I was lucky enough to interview this person simply because I had asked. I had emailed over saying, "I am on the autistic spectrum. I understand that your son is as well. Mm-hmm. I would really like to interview you." I was very very lucky that he lives in New York now, um, <laughs> has done for the past three, four decades, I think. He emailed back saying, yes. Wow. Read, read my wife's book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, he said. And we, and I remember this very well. He said, we'd be poised for a more informed chat. So mm-hmm. fast forward a few months later. And so my mum had given me the book for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I had read it, and I, and I don't mean to sort of like read it from cover to cover. I had notes, and I had looked it up, and I had read the press <laughs> clippings, and I had watched the interviews. It's my teacher always, my former lecturer Pete, sometimes jokes with me now that that's very obviously what I would do because of my spectrum traits, <laughs> and I. At the time, I wasn't particularly very well. Um, I later found out that I had some sort of infection and I was on antibiotics for a while. Um, and I, remem- I remember emailing Harry and the interview took place. Okay. That, that, was, that was probably one of my favourite things I have ever done because it, he saw me, the reporter, and not me, the problem. Mm-hmm. Interviews are not about the journalist. They're about the they're about the interviewee and the story that they have to tell. But it was really interesting to me how he was still sort of in journalist mode. So okay. whenever whenever I had a question for him, he would at times turn it round to me. So if I I remember asking him, "Do you think that you could potentially be on the spectrum?" 
Oh. Um, it's <laughs> and this uh, and he he sim it was he <laughs> I it, too many too many fools are going around him inside my head. Sorry for the noises. Um, no. He there was a pause, and you can hear it on the tape. And I remember being sort of shocked at this because he turned to me and said very slowly, and he had sort of locked eyes with me at this point. He wouldn't let me look away. He said he simply said. Do you think I would be so lucky? Oh. That was... <laughs> <laughs> it's... And I remember I didn't put it in the final piece that I wrote, but he did ask me why I had asked him that because that's not necessarily a very typical question that you would ask him interview subject and what had happened was I where I had been sick the many months before and I had been at home I had watched his documentary and my mum was with me at the time okay and it's a joke about this but it's very very accurate at times sometimes my mum can my mum almost has like autism radar okay (laughs) so it's if ever she can very accurately gauge if someone is on the spectrum and it's really quite interesting to watch her and watch like the cogs of her brain turning round because I can't necessarily tell if someone is. Mm -hmm. I just, uh, I can't really sort of read people particularly well. And I remember she had turned round to me on watching the documentary and she said very bluntly at the time, Lydia, that man is on the spectrum. I don't know how I know this, but he is. Oh, wow. Okay. It's it's just, it, retrospectively, I I have so many questions about this, I don't know where to go. Um, I <laughs> then was where I then worked a bit for Byline Media, and I was lucky enough the, was, I've got to be careful of what I say here. Um, the manufacturer of the thalidomide drug asked me to come to the HQ in Arkin. Wow. Possibly one of the most frightening things I've ever done, to be honest. Okay. Um, that article didn't make it to publication. Um, it's I don't work for Byline Media now. Um, I freelance instead, so... You can find, I <laughs> just trying to think ahead. When it's so, I have scripts inside my head for whenever I answer questions. Yeah. So currently trying to think ahead. Sometimes it does lead me onto quite odd tangents at times. No, um, that's all good. It's you can find usually I'm doing sort of if I say feature work now. So mm-hmm. I've written about travel a lot for Reader's Digest. Sometimes I do comment pieces for places like The Independent and The Metro. Um, Due to COVID-19, however, I was left in a kind of, if I say precarious position. So it was like a wrecking ball had been taken to my freelancing car. Oh, no. I'm sorry to hear that. It's the thing about that was, so as the pandemic started to take hold it was very much there was about a week where everything just sort of went south really Mm -hmm. I had I pitched maybe 
a hundred say if you pitch a hundred ideas in a month for you to earn money off the back of it, um pretty much more around seventy five percent of that was all cancelled if it oh, was no. accepted. Okay. Um so but the thing is about that, at the start of the year I had a goal to start a newsletter. Mm-hmm. If you look around, it's pretty much everyone has a newsletter now. Newsletters seem to be almost like the new blog. Yeah, I get what you mean, definitely. <laughs> it's just, it's, everyone has one and it's always rather than take a look at my blog or take a look at my new YouTube video, it's, oh, hi guys, subscribe to my newsletter if you want <laughs> weekly updates. Um, so I set one up, mm-hmm. but it's sort of funny it's it's sort of evolved since then so rather than say each week i have a sponsor and they have two advertising slots and they also get a blog post and social media promotion for me but i'm also looking into ways to expand my newsletter because well to be blunt about this i think people on the autistic spectrum have been significantly hit by covid19 so there are, there are, there, there is a lot of anecdotes about how people aren't necessarily accessing food as easily. They're having to adapt. Routines are getting destroyed. It's not a very good time for us. But there was also, there was a report about how, in terms of deaths with people with learning disabilities from coronavirus. There is a section about people on the autistic spectrum in that report. I'm not okay. going to quote it because it is quite scary and it's quite horrible reading. Right. Um, but the thing is, as well, we are also underemployed. Yes. So where we, whereas we may be able to work and we are ready to work, there are significant barriers into employment. Definitely, yeah. So that could be interview questions, it could be the job ad, it could be pretty much anything. Even though we have the 2010 Equality Act in place that stipulates that those barriers actually have to be removed, journalism is also incredibly lacking in diversity. I mean, really? It's, yeah, it's, it's very much the sort of, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's kind of like, Every, it's sort of, let me start again. There are, it's very much sort of white, upper class, male, has a degree and is over the age of 45 to 50 sort of thing. Right, okay. I've been in some newsrooms. Um, I'm not going to identify which ones, but I have, I can remember looking around and literally counting the people who are from a minority background on one hand. Wow. That's shocking to me. It's it is, <laughs> yeah. Diversity actually has it has a positive impact because if you have a more diverse workforce in terms of a newspaper, you on you could be finding the stories that are being missed. You have more wealth in terms of your collective experience, mm-hmm. and it's it's almost like if you imagine 
a fishing net, when you cast out for a story, you cast wider because you had that amount of contact. You had the different communities. You had the different... You, do, do you know what I mean? It's sort yes. of... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's what I'm trying to do with the newsletter is to expand it. Right now I have a donation pot on, I did, is it pronounced coffee? coffee? I think so, coffee, coffee, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm trying to raise a small amount because they want to pay people to either illustrate or to write for the newsletter. Okay, well, that's really it's, good. It's something small, I know, it's not particularly big, but it seems I just wanted to do something that's, first of all, that I could fill my spare time with because mm-hmm. it's due to, I, it's, I don't travel as much. It's, I used to have four or five meetings in a day or I'd travel out to London and back. I'm not doing that now and I have so much spare time on my hands and I wanted to do something that's actually constructive Mm-hmm. and could actually benefit someone potentially, I would like to see the newsletter grow into far more than it is right now so it could actually support people to have several contributors at one time who are actually paid a decent amount. I don't do the sort of... When you go into an interview, you have these social conventions and you have so many things that you have to take on to, you have to take into account. Mm-hmm. I don't, into, job interviews have always been really difficult for me, but they also seem almost kind of pointless in a way because yeah. sure, surely you just, you want to find someone who can do the work. You think so, that, you know, that's the main <laughs> criteria, it's, isn't it? But just, a job interview doesn't actually so, show someone's ability. It's... Surely it would be more productive and better use to see for someone to literally show you what they can do. Yeah. So if you I don't I don't know, if you had to be a computer programmer, rather than sitting through an interview, why can't you show your skill as a programmer and show what you can do if it's a task and if it's adapted to you particularly? Mm-hmm. It's just <laughs> At the start of the lockdown, I was in a private lecture for the charity that supports me. There's a woman who's doing research about women who are on the spectrum and employment. It's really interesting to me how she was, the the way I would explain it is she was saying women who are on the spectrum also have kind of like a gender standard as well as the autistic bit to deal with. Yes. So if you're, there was one scenario where a woman had reported how she had a male colleague and the male colleague was on the spectrum and he didn't do some things such as eye contact. He didn't really interact with people. He just sort of was by himself. Well, that's that was apparently okay because everyone could see that was him and his autistic behaviours. Whereas she was also in the spectrum, she had a similar set of problems. However, because she wasn't able to socialise mm-hmm. or like to go to team meetings, yes, sorry yeah. about the cough. <laughs> <though>. Um, 
because she wasn't able to do that, she was in fact penalised and told she wasn't much of a team player, she didn't do this, she didn't interact well with people. And there were scenarios where the women were actually penalised, so they were passed over for promotion, they weren't able to work their way their way up the company structure. Well, why is it relevant, apparently, that someone is female or not? I don't, I don't understand that. It just seems really counterproductive to me. Mm. They're, 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 they're both autistic. They both need yeah, help. And I feel like... With whatever they want. Yeah. I just, I feel like also, just as, you know, an autistic person, you can be a team player. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, whether or not you're kind of seen to be part of a team. You can be part of a team. Exactly. It's just, it's also, I <laughs> I was reading a an Instagram post yesterday and it was saying, it was kind of poking fun at people who always say, my child doesn't show affection in the right way. They don't hug me, they don't give me kisses, whatever. And it was saying, imagine being shamed if you were that child for not showing affection in the right way. Well, the thing is, those people who were penalised may not be shown that they were team players in the right way. However, yeah. they may in fact be supporting the team in a slightly different way that is comfortable to them. Mm-hmm. It's just... I don't... Why on earth? It, it's the 21st century. <laughs> it's That's just, the running theme. It's the 21st century. Why is Why are things still like this? <laughs> it just, it's sort of... We've made... For we, we sometimes talk as if we are the enlightened species and look how far we've come across history. Well, mm. in some respects, we're still, we're maybe at step two instead of step one. We've not really come very far. No, not really. Not when you think of it like that. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to do something to start off with because I mm. see people who are in need of help who aren't getting it who aren't accessing the help that they are entitled to they are forgotten about because well why would a government care to be honest yeah I mean it's amazing that you have you know set this up all you know kind of by yourself and that you're managing you know content from different creators and writers and dealing with sponsorships and stuff like that and you're like giving back to the community and you didn't have to, like, you know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a pandemic, it, we were in lockdown, it's difficult enough to be just autistic and existing at the moment, but it's amazing that you've set this up and you're kind of willing to kind of get views from, you know, everyone from different walks of life. So I think that's really great. You are very kind. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it just, if I can, <laughs> I remember, in ter- if I can think this is me thinking as a reporter. When I've covered stories that are, if I say from communities that aren't particularly that well covered and mm-hmm. who are in need of help at times, the question has always been in my mind as to why I need to justify my work is to say, if it's not me, then who? Who is going to do the story, who is going to cover this community, who is actually going to sit there and actually care 
it seems to me that there isn't necessarily as great as action as there could be. Mm-hmm. So if you look at um, how to describe this, um, there's the story about people on the spectrum who have been in hospitals but kept their beyond the means that they were supposed to be there. Right, yeah. There's there's that story that's been going on for a while. Well, that apparently was supposed to be over a long, long time ago. Well, okay. that's that's still ongoing, and it's really quite egregious, really. There's mm-hmm. – um, I'm trying to remember her name. It's – I'm just trying to think what her name is because she – there's a mother who wrote the book Justice for Laughing Boy. Okay. And that's about how her son died and the failure around his care. Right, okay. Well, we need to improve upon and ensure things like that don't happen again, to be honest. I am, I am one small person, but I can do my bit to try and make this a better place i mean mm-hmm. it's it's not something particularly big it's just a small thing that i'm doing on my laptop every so often but i would like to think that at least this is something i couldn't i'm i would have to try and fail rather than being rather than being the one who goes well what happened well what could have happened mm. if i tried this or that and be sort of regretful 20, 30 years down the line. I couldn't do that. I'd always have to be the one who would try something and fail at it. I'm starting to sound like a life coach. Oh my God. No, no, not at all. I think that that's what's really fascinating about kind of you being a journalist is that you can bring attention to something that is, you know, underreported on or doesn't seem very significant um, in the media at the moment and you can shed light on something you know such as you know mental health or you know special needs and you know being impatient and stuff like that like it's stuff that's not you just don't hear enough of but it's going on so I definitely think it's important I will say though um I need to be polite about this. Um, if if you had met me in person and we weren't recording this podcast it would usually be with more expletives um (laughs) it's one of the things that does annoy me is how editors have seen me as the autistic reporter rather than just the reporter so there are people that I know who have won praise and been awarded prestigious awards for being dogged and being obsessional about the stories that they work on. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I hear from editors is a lot is, oh, you again, you're so obsessional. You're so obsessed with the story, you need to step back. You're so obsessed, but this isn't newsworthy enough. What makes it new? But that's well, a great quality. <laughs> but that's what I want to say. It's They have reporters on their staff, and by that I mean full-time reporters rather than freelancers like myself. Mm-hmm. They have reporters who have been awarded praise, and their paper, as a result, has been given prestige. 
What mm. is the crime in being obsessional? It, I can understand if it was detrimental to your work. And I mm. have met some journalists who are like that, who can be obsessional to the point where they lose the balance and they lose focus. But I know I'm not like that because I can very clearly separate what what I need to do, where to go, and I always have an idea of the story I'm after. Mm-hmm. Well, where's the crime in that? It just yeah, it's just <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it is one of the it's one of my pet hates, and it's always I have at times I feel like I've been not treated in the in particularly well okay and it, that's not just confined to one editor that's happened on a few occasions where either they've been rude on email or I've met them and they start laughing at me because apparently I'm always banging on about a particular story well I know I'm such I know I'm such uh <laughs> <laughs> I know I have obsessions I know I am obsessional, but that's because I'm autistic. It doesn't make me any it I would argue being on the spectrum makes me a better reporter. It doesn't make me less. No. Being obsessional does not make me less in that respect. Mm-hmm. It's I it's whenever people ask me about this, because it's Apparently, it's a novelty to have someone who's female, autistic, and a reporter all at the same time. <laughs> it's, I have to laugh at that because it's just, I don't know why people sometimes approach me like I'm special for some reason. I don't really see myself like that, to be totally honest. Mm. Um, where was I going with this? Um, they, the question I tend to get asked is how do you sort of balance being autistic and a journalist? do the two interact or does it have an impact on your work and there's always sort of people tend to think of this in a negative way I find okay I'd argue that it's a positive thing even though I so I have to take into account for things such as my social energy or I have to travel to places which can be really tiring um, mm-hmm. I also don't drive, and I don't think I would be able to learn how to drive, to be honest. No, that's fair enough. Um, but the thing is, I, in terms of my particular hallmarks, it enables me to, for instance, go into interviews and ask whatever the hell I want. Yeah. That gets the, the juicy bit, the real meat of the story. That gets you the newsworthy quote and a good headline. That gets you a good story, being able to ask whatever you want rather than sort of being shy about it and sort of, you know, like tiptoeing around an issue when there's the white elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. It's, I have, this is going to sound really awful, I have a fairly good contacts book. Okay. but But that was because I don't, people are people. But why should it stop me that somebody has apparently sold a million copies of a book from talking to them. Mm-hmm. Apparently, exactly. apparently, that's a social code that apparently I'm supposed to be careful of. <laughs> it's just, I, I think that's great that you're not because that's what gets you kind of, you know. It's, I don't, I would like to think that I'm not impolite. It's as I've gotten older, I've learned 
to filter more of what I'm about to say and Mm -hmm. to think ahead and to be polite to people. But it doesn't, I don't really understand why I should care about people's status. No, you should be able to talk to anyone at any level. Exactly. It's, if I can, to be honest about this, I find people are easier to approach on email or via the phone sometimes. I find it depends on the person, but in in person when you're in the same room, such as a networking event, I find that really difficult. Yeah. Networking, it was something I used to be or write at, and I used to come away with people's business cards and be like, oh, I've had an amazing time. Um, that sort of changed because I may have had a – I describe it as a panic attack. My friends describe it as a meltdown. I I had a network event um last year. Oh no! Um, yeah, it's that was it was messy and I left early. Oh bless you! <laughs> it's I used to be alright at that, but if it's via email and it it would if you it would it, people sometimes seem to be amazed by this, but pretty much everyone is online these days. Hmm. So. Obviously, if you, if you say you wanted to get an interview, you can pretty much contact anyone. But if it's somebody like J.K. Rowling, obviously you can't reach her because she's on a sort of different playing field, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But you can pretty much reach most of the people that you would want to interview because they have an email address. If they don't have a personal one, you can go and find their publicist, their agent, and just say, hi, I write for so-and-so, I was wondering, could we have an interview, blah, blah, blah. And they, nine times out of ten, they say yes. Well, that's good that they, you know, you know, even just reaching out, you're getting a response back. Just, <laughs> you know, even just plucking up the courage to do that is a big thing. It's, if I can... I would probably have to credit my grandparents with that. So I'm told that my that my ability to go and just seek someone out for an interview is not it's abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was growing up, they always used to have this great phrase. They used to say to me, "If you don't ask, you don't get." So true. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's just well. If we, if you and I hadn't have asked, we wouldn't have been diagnosed with autism. Yeah. Also, if I hadn't, you know, kind of said online, like I'm looking for guests, I wouldn't have had this chat with you. So there's no harm in asking. Yeah, there's literally no harm in reaching out. The worst you're going to get is a no or like no response, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Or, and if somebody's rude about it, well, that's just their loss. To be honest, it's. It just, you know, that's something that they can take. It's nothing to do with us and it's not incumbent on us to care about if someone's rude. We may exactly. we may complain about it. So someone was really rude to me and it put a downer on my mood. However, that's not we shouldn't care about that. That's the problem is with them. Mm-hmm. So no. <laughs> <laughs> it's I would have to credit my grandparents with that. It's I I ought to have it tattooed, I feel like, along my forearm to say, if you don't ask, you don't get <laughs> Just to remind you. it's. I was explaining to my support advisor who was emailing me the other – I was on a Zoom call with her, 
because I had mm-hmm. to fill out um, an official document. Um, and she was writing me a letter for this to explain what my challenge is and what my different needs are. And I was explaining to her how I think it was quite sick. By the age of 18, I had interviewed the frontman of the official Queen tribute band, Anastasia, and a couple of best-selling authors such as Jodie Picoult and Jacqueline Wilson. Wow. And well, this is the thing. I always find it really interesting when people have a reaction like yours because it's, <laughs> it's just sort of run-of-the-mill for me. Mm. And, I was, and I had to explain to her how at college, at secondary school, even when I was doing my NCTJ, people would go to me, well, how did you do that? Mm. Because they sort of, I was sort of seen as the autistic one. And obviously, I can't do that because that's not what autistic people do, apparently. Why not? I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a shame. And I used to explain, this is stereotypical of me, um, how during lunch breaks, for instance, I remember that groups of students who were in my class, for instance, some of who I was friends with, they'd sit around and they would eat their lunch, they would eat their break time snack or whatever, and they always seemed to talk about what was very neurotypical. Mm-hmm. And I mean stereotypically so. So <laughs> I remember that they, for one particular summer when I was in education, that it was all about a particular boy band. That was all they talked about. And it was the latest single. And oh my God, I've got tickets. And <laughs> I just did not conform to them. I didn't really care to be honest I just did not see the point yeah and then so I'd be off in the library wherever email and go okay here are my questions thank you (laughs) whoever and sort of building sort of building on the basis of that I think that was a good foundation for what I'm doing now Mm -hmm. because it's sort of that's kind of like pretty much what I was doing five six years ago is the basics of what you need to be able to do, really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you've really like built on that and you still have that kind of passion to not like chase people, but to, you know, get, you know, a bit a response or at least, you know, a little bit further. I would like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, I was reading an interview with Tina Brown. She, Tina Brown used to, she is an editor and she used to, sadly it's closed down due to coronavirus, she ran an organisation called Women in the World. She also okay. had a podcast, she was an editor for Vanity Fair, I think it was The New Yorker, I, may not, I might not necessarily be correct about that. And she was saying how it amazes her because she's, I think she's 64, 65 maybe? She was saying how people need to be good at a follow-up. So if you go to an event and you're brave enough, I'm not not necessarily brave enough, and a lot of people I know are okay with this, it's just networking is terrifying. Um, It is. (laughs) If you get the business card, that's all very well and said, but you need to follow up to consolidate that. So say you got home and the next day, what do you do with the information you've been given? Mm-hmm. Well, 
a lot of people I know would just sort of stick it in their notebook or whatever and stick they would stick it in their contacts book, notebook, and it would be brought out at a later date. Uh, as in, yeah. oh, this person from a party I met five, six years ago, what do I do about that? I'll throw it away. <laughs> um, the next morning, if you've... If you've talked about a particular subject or if you had an idea for something like we've had on this podcast, just mm-hmm. see, email them and say, hi, I've just to say I really enjoyed meeting you. Just to like follow it up, yeah. And that consolidates the contact for ages afterwards. It's a foundation for something that could be really influential. I have a wonderful mentor, um, I hope he's. I hope he doesn't listen to this because it, it's sort of, it's embarrassing. But I may have met him when I had too much to drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's that's not something I usually do, and I was so embarrassed the next day. Um, he, I got to meet him at an event, and I remember emailing afterwards. He has been a wonderful mentor to me. He used to work for Reuters, and he was one of the. Founding editors of the Independent on Sunday, I think. Okay. He has been wonderful. He contributed to the fund I set up for my newsletter. When it, oh, he's, all, he's helped me in terms of finding people that I need to talk to. He has sent them emails on my behalf because he knows I'm not a particularly good communicator. <laughs> We've even shared a joke at times. It's, just, <laughs> it's networking. Networking is terrifying. I find it really quite a horrible prospect. I go into meetings sometimes with just that ball of anxiety in my stomach. Yeah. And it's also, I don't know if you find this, but I'm hypersensitive to noise. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that is uh, my big thing. You, you know when you're in a room and there's just like 100, 200 people around you? God, that seems like such a thing of the past, doesn't it? Due to lockdown. It does. It does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sort of, you don't hear the particular voices. It's more like the hum, the sound of the voice. Yes. yes. Just, there's just too many people talking and, oh, my God, I can't filter this. And the yeah. lights are going and then the lights are making a noise and the carpet under my feet and my shoes are squeaking. And, oh, my God. <laughs> it's all too much. Dare I, dare I ask, how are you finding lockdown? I, I, I'm I okay. I, I mean, like you described there, I'm not, I'm not missing large meetings and things because they are just overwhelming. And I am used to working in an open plan office, which is a nightmare and I love working from home. So <laughs> actually it's allowed me to like trial working from home. So I feel quite lucky in a respect that I'm actually getting on okay. It seems, it's funny, isn't it? How there's a lot of people who have said prior to the pandemic, they were not allowed to work from home or if they were in education um, mm. The lecturer would not put up the content online. Yes, because it apparently was too much for them. Whereas now it's just like the done thing. <laughs> it just, I, I hope that something comes out of this in terms of accessibility. To be honest, mm, me too. It just wouldn't it be wonderful if it was just sort of a given rather than people who have. A condition like you and I aren't just mm-hmm. the 
thing that needs to be sorted out at the last minute. Yeah, that would it would be good to have that consideration. It just right up within this sort of this. It's it's really frustrating, I think. So there was, I forget what condition she had. There was a woman who wrote in the Guardian how she has had to. She's been housebound pretty much for the last five, six years due to her condition. Mm-hmm. And she was something, I think she was something like a trained solicitor. Okay. And she had to go back and do some sort of extra qualification for some reason. Well, she was apparently made to feel like she was a burden and she was told, oh, it can't be possible. We can't put your educational materials online because it's just too much. Well, since COVID-19 and the lockdown happening, everything's been online. And it's sort of like, what the hell? This is a woman who, although she has an impairment physically, she is worth more than what you see she is a qualified solicitor. You are missing out on something. Mm. This is what I don't understand. It's in terms of accessibility, you are missing from a business perspective. If you are not accessible, you are missing so much and you are missing potentially a huge amount of customers. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's ridiculous. It is, isn't it? It's just. It's like, there's an example. It makes me. I'm trying not to laugh when I say this because it just was so stupid. Um, there's a cafe in the town where I live, mm-hmm. and there's a sign up saying that it will be wheelchair accessible. Come in and speak mm-hmm. to the manager. Well, the thing is, so outside it steps. Right. To be wheelchair accessible, it needs like um, the steps, it needs a different mode of entry to get around mm-hmm. the steps. Well, mm-hmm. what it's speaking about is if you are in a wheelchair and you want to get in, come inside up the stairs to speak to the manager and then we'll make it accessible to you. It's just, it's just ridiculous how, <laughs> how. Surely just. Reading that out loud, it doesn't make sense. So, ha- what? <laughs> it just the sign literally said, "Come in and speak to the manager." If to for this to become an accessible entrance, well, if someone's in a wheelchair, they can't. Yeah, that's just a, that's <laughs> just assumed that they're coming in with someone else when actually that's not the case. It's people do live independently. It's just yeah. it's so shocking, isn't it? It's the twenty first century, and oh my god, <laughs> it's just. It seems to me just it was, I, I was laughing at this and my friend who was with at the time, she didn't think it particularly funny because she she has a more of a dark sense of humour. Okay. It's just it is really silly and if it if things were accessible just to begin with, it would just be a much nicer, more functional place to be honest. It definitely it would be. Oh, I, that doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> it doesn't, not at all. And I was really pleased. How on earth did any, how on earth anyone thought that that was okay is really beyond no. me. <laughs> it's just it must have been signed off by someone, like a site manager or the owner of the shop. Yeah, yeah that's a worry, isn't it? 
which is then that's why you need representation because I'm just as a guess they're probably going to be able bodied. Well, if someone who has experience of using a wheelchair had made that decision, mm. you wouldn't be in this position in the first place. Yeah, that's tr- very true, actually. Or if they had, you know, taken the time out to actually put a bit of thought into this and to actually read around and how can we make our shop accessible? That wouldn't have happened. Exactly. <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh, I just had a look and we've almost been talking slash recording for an hour and a half. So I'm thinking we might might wrap things up soon. <laughs> but I wanted to um, get you to just to say like the name of your blog and how people can access your newsletter and stuff like that. So I don't know if you want to just say where people can find find you online. Okay. Um, so across the board, I am journo underscore Lydia. So journo Journo, short for journalist, is J-O-U-R-N-O, underscore, and my last name is spelled L-Y-D-I-A. It's amazing how many people can't actually spell my name. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, It's, I've had sometimes the Russian equivalent, so the Y is an I, for instance. I had a lecturer who, when she used to mark my essay that I had to do over the weekend, for instance, there must have been about six different alternatives for my name. <laughs> and she never she never quite realised what oh, the no. right way of spelling my oh. name was. <laughs> um, if you, for updates three times a week, you can find me at mademoiselle.women.com. Literally spelled as it sounds, mademoiselle was in the sexy French sounding voice. <laughs> um, that was... So the blog name was chosen because um, so what a, a little while ago, Sylvia Plath was one of my special interests. Okay. She is a really interesting figure. She wrote The Bell Jar and a couple of poetry volumes. Um, the, she spent a summer in Manhattan interning at Mademoiselle magazine back in 1953, I think this was. <laughs> um, I quite like... Mademoiselle had the ethos that women could be, they could be interested in fashion, have a career, have a family, and still be, you know, interested in the sort of trivial things like nail varnish and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I quite liked that because I'm not just an autistic person. I am interested in more, if I use the expression feminine things, so... I quite like to do my nails. I quite like having my hair done. But I'm, it doesn't stop me being interested in things such as politics. Um, my newsletter is, for reasons of simplicity, it's titled Lydia's Newsletter. Um, Excellent. <laughs> it's stupid odd. I'm not, I'm not particularly creative. I find naming things really difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't know if this actually works. So I haven't actually done it. If you Googled it, it might come up. I don't okay. I don't know. <laughs> Is there like a link to your newsletter on your blog? Yeah. So there so people can find it there. I think yeah. I put a page up for the newsletter. Um you can also find it so I use Linktree in terms of when I have a social media profile, the sign up and the archive where you can view all the back issues, I don't know if you call them issues, posts, I don't know. Um, you can view those all for free. If you 
put your email address in it, you will get an update every Monday at 12.30. Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> UK time. Yeah, I, def- I definitely recommend like subscribing to it if, if you haven't already. I know a lot of people um, on Instagram who I follow are already kind of subscribed to it. So it's quite a kind of community. Yeah, there's a few people I know who are subscribed to it who really enjoy it. And um, like a few illustrators as well who you've kind of like commissioned and stuff. Like um, I think Megan and also at Aspie um, Bun, I think, as well, did some drawings for you. So I know like a few people as well. So um, I definitely recommend subscribing <laughs> i actually haven't seen that that's i do it's it sounds arrogant for from i imagine that this sounds arrogant if you're listening to this but i haven't actually seen a lot of feedback about the newsletter it's still a very i haven't been doing it well maybe 11 weeks okay so it's the fact that i'm hearing this this is amazing and i'm very yeah. i'm very happy that it's going to the right place i put it's i wasn't even sure if i designed it well enough to be readable <laughs> no you have and i love how many like kind of links and stuff you have to like submissions and like pitching guides and like even just like job boards and bits and pieces and like other resources as well that are more like autistic based like it's a real like mix which i really love that's so kind of you thank you <laughs> <laughs> that's it to put it into context for people listening i've had we were talking a bit before this um I've not had a particularly good week, to be honest. Um, just so many things have been going wrong. And in the last few days, it's sort of been ver- I've been on the verge of a meltdown because, oh, my God, everything's so hopeless and we're still in lockdown and the lockdown changes that are coming up are so scary. And just, yeah, I just sort of, I'm in hibernation mode. I've seen one person outside of my house. <laughs> and I couldn't see her for four weeks. My friend is in her 60s, and even though she doesn't like to admit it, she is vulnerable, and she's mm. more likely to pick this virus up. It's just so it's really nice to hear an actual voice saying this and someone who's actually <laughs> read it. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Um, well, thank you for coming on and for chatting so like openly about... like. The diagnosis and also like your life as a journalist it's been honestly really interesting and it's kind of fascinating all the things you've done and all the people <laughs> you've spoken to um it's really like been a really interesting insight I think and I think people will enjoy this episode thank you that's very kind of you if anyone wants to if anyone wants to give me feedback about yeah. how this podcast went do come and find me it's I don't yeah. I'm not the sort that would have their voice on their Instagram stories, for instance, I don't. I only really take pictures, and I don't post a lot about my face and how I look physically or how I sound. If there's, if you have any feedback, I would like to know, but I will not be yeah. listening back to this. <laughs> well, we'll definitely we'll get. I'll try and get people to to listen to this, and then either kind of message you or email you some feedback and also if anyone subscribes to a newsletter as well you are very kind thank you i've really enjoyed this no worries okay so i'm going to wrap it up thank you very much for listening everybody and thank you lydia for coming on bye bye